Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. All right, we're very close to the end of getting through 1st, 2nd Peter, which you heard from the elders in August, and now 1st Peter, which I've been preaching through. And uh, we have one more week, and then we're into the Thanksgiving season, and then we're going to go right into Advent, and we're into the holiday season. Can you believe that it's coming that quickly? Unbelievable. But we're coming toward the end of Peter's strong practical advice to people as he's writing his letters. And today would suffice as what I would normally present on about the last day of my connections course, that membership course that I teach, because it goes into a lot of detail about what we think Christian leadership should look like, and I'm grateful to say that we have that kind of Christian leadership in the eldership here at Living Water. So you'll be hearing a lot about that today. But I think it's good for you to know that there's a big difference between the way the world would choose its leaders, the criteria that it uses, and the way that God chooses its leadership. And so I'd like to point that out satirically through an excerpt from an article that I had read years ago and I found it again. Memo. From the Jordan Management Consultants to Jesus of Nazareth. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have highlighted as possible candidates for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. It is our professional opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. And then the memo goes on to list several of their concerns. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. It is our professional obligation to inform you that Matthew's name has appeared on the blacklist of the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. Both James, the son of Alphaeus, and the disciple you have named Thaddeus, have definite radical leanings, and they have both registered an extremely high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, and he has contacts in influential places. He's motivated, ambitious, and responsible. Therefore, we recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We do wish you success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. That is an excerpt from a book titled Eating Problems for Breakfast by Tim Hansel, just so you'll know. I think that probably you can get a very clear picture immediately that this is exactly not where we're going in terms of how 
the Lord Jesus Christ picked the 12 guys he was going to invest himself in, and only 11 of them worked out. And they are exactly the 11 not recommended in what would be considered a fairly typical management consultant role as they're looking for that. So what we find is that this passage is actually written from one shepherd to another. Remember, we started this series by the title, The Fisherman Shepherd, because Simon Peter, the fisherman, was given a new role by Jesus Christ as he was commissioned when he was reinstated after Peter had denied Christ three times. And he said, you should become a fisher of men. And so he's going to become a shepherd of other people. And then he got to walk with Jesus long enough to be able to be reminded by the Holy Spirit that was given after Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, so that he would remind Peter of all those things he had been taught as he walked with Christ for three years. So fortunately, we have Peter's letters now to give us that insight, spiritual insight, and God's spiritual business of picking leaders is very different than the world's business. The world's approach to choosing leaders generally has to do with how much a person can get the job done, very often we see that some people who just are more intimidating than other people rise to the level of management. And that's a shame because sometimes the best servant leaders are those people who are not as boisterous as others and yet they know how to serve the team so that the team can accomplish great things for Christ. So I'd like to read for you just this very short but pithy passage in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. If you're following along, I'm reading from the NIV, so it may be a little bit different from your translation. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, which is why I said it was one shepherd to another, as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Thank you, Lord, for this word. We ask for you to make it clear to all of us, including the speaker. We're going to look at these three ways that the elders' calling is unique today in this passage. First of all, they have a heavy responsibility. Secondly, they must have exceptional attitudes, and we'll see about what those attitudes might look like in this passage, and they must lead by example. We're going to look at that. First of all, they carry a weighty responsibility. The word used in the Greek is presbyteros. Does that sound familiar in some ways because of a particular denomination? It should, because presbyterian comes from that word, and presbyteros comes from a root word in the Greek that an optometrist once used for another pastor, a guy that I know of, who went to get his eyes checked at the optometrist. And the guy says, well, you have presbyopia. And the pastor kind of hung his head a little bit, and he said, yeah, thank you very much. Because, because I've studied Greek. I know what that means. It means old eyes. <laughs> it means you've got old age-itis. You've got mature eyes, and they're old enough that you're going to have to start getting some help with that. So presbyteros means mature. I kind of prefer the term mature as old. And then shepherds. We see that term in this passage as well. He says, from one shepherd to another, in a sense. These shepherds are the same kinds of shepherds that Jesus is talking about when he reinstates Peter. I've told you about that a couple of different times in this series because you can't talk about Peter 
without remembering the time when he finally met Christ face to face after the denials. And that was when Christ spoke to him and he said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Well, yeah, you know I do, Lord. Well, then feed my sheep. And he said, second time, do you love me more than these, Peter? Yes, you know I do. And he was a little bit hurt by that. And he goes, then shepherd or tend my sheep. And then, of course, he did it a third time as well. It's the same word for shepherd. He means tend the flock, Peter. Become that shepherd that I told you you could become when I reinstated you here. Uh, When I was first coming to Milan, Michigan, to a search team meeting at Troy and Angel Bennett's house, in fact, I brought with me the book Spiritual Leadership by Henry Blackaby, which I was reading at the time. That was just over 18 years ago. And people were asking me, have you been reading anything that's influential in your leadership style? And I said, I just happened to bring this with me, yes, because I think it's vital, it's important. Because Henry Blackaby was saying things that needed to be said, speaking truth into spiritual leadership, because so much of what was being written about leadership at the time was borrowing from the world. It was all Fortune 500 company stuff that was being repackaged as Christianity. And Henry says, no, don't go that that direction. I've seen churches suffer because people have tried too much to be like the world's style of leadership. And Henry says, no, God has a whole different criteria, a whole different way of leading and even choosing his leaders. Consider Moses as an example. He never would have passed the tests through that Jordan Management Consultant Company if they had run him through there. He said, well, he's killed a man for one thing. He's been on the lamb for a long time, and all he's doing now is watching sheep out in a field somewhere. We don't consider him good, strong leadership potential. But what we see in Scripture is that God was using that very thing that Moses was doing in preparation for the task that God had in store for him. God will very often call people that we look at from human perspective and think, oh, I don't know about that one. And then we see God doing something magnificent through a willing servant who's willing to give his or herself over fully to obedience in using the spiritual gifts that God gives them. The job description of a shepherd, this is not just from this passage, this is looking at a lot of different writings, both from Peter and the Apostle Paul, who I've brought in several times in this series. First of all, you need to know the sheep if you're a shepherd. I love the title of this book, and I still haven't read the book yet, but I like the title. It's called, They Smell Like Sheep. Great title for a book, isn't it? They Smell Like Sheep. And you think, ew. Well, he's basing that on the fact that Jesus was the one who smelled like sheep because he left the glorious throne of heaven itself to come to be born literally in a stable. So there's a literal smelling like sheep there, but also so that he could get to know the people that he was shepherding as the good shepherd, which means fellow human beings. He was up close and personal with them. He hung out enough with them that he smelled like them. That means that he was rubbing off on them and they on him in a good way. Elders get weighty concerns heaped upon them because they know their people well. I wrestled all week long about whether to share what I'm about to share, and I got the green light from the Holy Spirit, I believe, because I think it's useful. Uh, Sometimes, because elders have the title of elder, and they know the people well enough to serve them and to give godly counsel and people respect them, some people will turn to them and give them difficult information. I know this to be true because I know this happened several years ago. There was an elder who was given some weighty information just after a growth encounter class because sometimes people will say, can I talk to you for just a second right after this course? And they'll say, certainly, of course. And 
it was the kind of information that that person shared with the elder that you can't share broadly because it had to do with an immediate family member and it was something that was so personal and so desperate that you think, oh my goodness, wow, how do you even pray for that? You know, Lord, give me wisdom to know how I can minister to this family and how can I encourage this person? So when you've just been given that piece of information and you're walking out of a growth encounter class, what are you thinking about? Well, you're thinking about that information that was just shared with you. And so that person was just weighed down with this thing and was sort of praying as he was walking. And he walked past about a dozen other people to get in toward the worship area. Months later, the pastor of this particular congregation, which may or may not have been located within 200 miles of this church, um, found out that there was a couple in the church that left the church. And in an exit interview asked, why did you leave? They said, well, one of the elders just snubbed me and they walked right past me and didn't even say hello. Do you see why that's weighty to me as a pastor? And I say that because I think it's important for all of us to cut each other some slack and give each other the benefit of the doubt. And you may not be aware of all the weighty things that elders have to struggle with and wrestle with because they too are protectors of the flock and they're wrestling with very heavy things that God lays on them because of their role. And so if somebody walks past you, pray for that person, particularly if they look troubled because it's probably something that they're wrestling with that they need prayer for. And secondly, this is where the preacher in me comes out, the exhortation steps over into becoming admonishment. That couple had been under my teaching enough that they should have known better. They should have been able to go to that person and say, I know that this happened and I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. Is there something wrong between us? Have I done something to offend you? And if not, I'm sorry for bringing it up, but is there a way that I can support you? See, that's spiritual maturity. And I would think, man, if they hadn't caught that yet, what have they been listening to? So my exhorter comes out and says, folks, let's just treat each other with such respect. And don't be looking to see what you can do for me. Be looking to see how we can shepherd one another as well. Not just the elders, but all of us need to pay attention how we can care for one another in the flock. Secondly, in this job description of an elder, feed the sheep. You know, the shepherds in Israel, because you guys were so kind to send Joy and me to Israel a couple of years ago, and we noticed that there were shepherds literally still doing what they were doing in certain areas right around Jerusalem. They were doing 2,000 years ago. You have these Bedouin tribes. Now, they had trucks instead of camels, some of them. And some of them would have 50-gallon barrels of water up on a hill. Uh, they were painted black so they could get solar heat. And they would take showers from that water. So they're a little bit more current than they might have been back then, but they're still doing a lot of that. And somebody told us, I think it was our guide, Irit, who said that a lot of those shepherds will need to take the sheep to different locations because there's limited grazing um, food. They can eat up the grass in one area so much that there's nothing else for them to eat. So part of being a good shepherd is looking where they can lead them to the next place to find good food. If you're going to make a correlation to that from the eldership at our church, one of the things we prayerfully try to do is to find out where is our congregation in its spiritual growth and where do we need to feed next? What book do we need to teach next? What small group needs to be offered? Uh, where can we do a series? What is our winter Bible study going to look like? What things can we do to make sure that we're having a good full, full fiber diet of the word and not just giving them uh, milk? We want to get them into the meat. 
Those are all things that are weighty matters for elders, and we take that very seriously. So that's something that's part of that. So not only do we lead the sheep, but we feed the sheep as well. Here are some ways that your elders are very involved in feeding. Growth encounters. Any one of the five of us have been involved very regularly in teaching in growth encounters. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of it. I want to keep pounding on this pretty hard. There's a wonderful class right around the corner for adults. And it gets taught almost at a seminary level so that if you're looking for meat, you're going to find it around the corner. There's some discussions that get into that you might think, I don't know what they're talking about. That's okay. Sit there long enough and you'll figure it out because there's a lot of good explanation, but they go deep with the word. It's rare for a congregation this size to have that depth of teaching available. And I'd like more people to be able to avail themselves of that level of teaching. There are other growth encounters for every age group and uh, there are home groups. There's Awana, Pastor Mike, who's uh, away into Ohio for a family funeral this weekend. He teaches Awana and you know his heart. He gives himself holy to teaching the word to these younger uh, adults in training so they can get a firm foundation. The Haiti pastor training, all five of the elders here at Living Water have invested a great deal of time, money, energy, preparation, teaching time so that we can help equip pastors down in Haiti. And we had that first graduation just last year. And it was a wonderful thing to see these guys who are taking the word seriously. And then our winter Bible study that we do every year, we have a really neat idea that we're starting to uh, to kind of put into our crucible together now for this year's winter Bible study or this next year's. It's, we don't know if it'll be the late January or sometime in February, but be watching for more details about that. It's going to be creative. It's going to be fun. We're going to give you not only spiritual food, but physical food. So if you come on Saturday for the first two sessions, we're going to have some things to just keep you awake in the morning, but then we're going to have lunch and then have that third session and then on Sunday, in the growth encounter, we'll have session number four. And then in the preaching, session number five. It's going to be memorable. Please keep that in mind. It's something we want to do because it gets you into the Word deeply. Winter Bible study. And then thirdly, in this job description of a shepherd, we're going to lead the sheep. What, what was the first one that I said? Know the sheep, feed the sheep, and now lead the sheep. He leads me beside the still waters. That's the psalm of the shepherd, Psalm 23. He does that. God knows where to lead us and how and when. He knows what we need when we need it. Joy and I needed that sabbatical. We didn't even know how badly we needed it until we were halfway through it. And we could sense that all the stress that we'd carried for two years because of several traumatic things that had been happening was just starting to lift off of our shoulders because God led us by the still waters. God knows that for each one of us, and he knows you better than you know yourself. So if you can trust the shepherd's voice, if he's leading you beside the still waters, if he's leading you somewhere, pay attention to that Holy Spirit's prompting because he knows what you need. That's what we as elders try to prayerfully do. How do we lead the sheep? How can we challenge them but without leading so far that we turn around and we say, oh, nobody's following. I think it was uh, Rick Warren that said in a growth uh, conference that we attended years ago, he said, uh, if a leader thinks he's leading and he turns around and there's nobody following, he's just out taking a walk. We don't want to be out just taking a walk. We want to lead by example, and we want to lead challenging enough that we bring people along with us into the vision that God has given all of us, and we really prayerfully seek to do that. And finally, protect the sheep. Matthew 18, 6, if you want to see Jesus get hot under the collar, you just start threatening one of the little sheep, and that's what was starting to happen. And he said, 
oh, it would be better for somebody if they caused one of these little ones, those who believe in Jesus Christ, to stumble, for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the deepest part of the sea. He means business when it talks about protecting the sheep. And there are two ways of protecting, really, these sheep from the wolves. One way is what I have spoken about in our new members class from time to time to let people know that we're serious about protecting people physically. We actually have a security team right here, a safety team at Living Water. They always are on the lookout, keeping this place a safe place so that we know that we can bring people, including our children who are precious to us, into a safe environment. But also we had to protect somebody in a previous church where I was pastor because a woman brought a serious charge about somebody and said, I'm feeling creeped out by this guy because he's just giving uncomfortably long holy hugs. And I said, uh, we will get our elders on that right away. And we talked about it and decided we're going to take a swift course of action. And we did take her seriously. We brought that guy in and we said, this is what's happening. You may not be aware of it. You might not intend it, but it's got to stop. Because if she feels uncomfortable, it's not a holy hug. What makes it holy is that everybody feels safe and it's edifying to the body. This is not edifying. And if you don't know you've got a problem, then that's the problem. You need to become aware of the problem. And I said, so if this doesn't stop right away, we're going to take more serious action, and it's going to include some consequences that you're probably not going to like. So this needs to stop. Are we clear? And he said, yes. And it stopped for a while. And then about three months later, same person came back to us again. And she made the same report. So we invited him in. We had multiple people there. So it wasn't just one person's word against another. We were taking Matthew very seriously. And we said, we're going to offer counseling and we'll pay for it. But you need help in this area. Because clearly you're not reading the cues that somebody is sending out. And you need to learn how to read those cues. Because we will not allow people to be made to feel uncomfortable in this way. And if you will sign this document, then that will say that you're agreeing to what we've asked you to do. And then when you get to the counselor, you need to sign a disclosure statement that gives that counselor permission to tell us, yes, he's making progress. Now, we don't have to know the details about that, but we have to know that you're following through. And so that we're not just hearing from you, yeah, I'm going and it's fine. That's not good enough because this is serious business. We had to do that. Why? Because the Bible gave us a mandate to protect the sheep. And we told him that. Well, he was unwilling to comply. And so he left the church. And he said some very unkind and in some cases untrue things about the leadership of our church. And that was okay because we protected the sheep. We were willing to take the hit because we're not about to say, well, we're just going to turn a blind eye to that and pretend like that's not happening. Folks, we take that seriously. And we take it seriously here at Living Water. So that's physical protection, but also spiritual protection. There are a lot of really bad things being taught out in the world today. Some of them by people who purport to be believing Christians. And some of it's nonsense, and it's heretical, and it leads to pain and suffering if you don't follow what's a real biblical course of action. So it's up to us to say, hey, we hear that this stuff is going around, and we need to refute that. Some of that comes out in our preaching. Some of it comes out in small group teaching, some in our growth encounters. But we want to make sure that we have our antenna up to make sure that we're trying as best we can to give you solid, healthy, biblical food and to protect you from false teaching because it's rampant today. So getting back to our three ways the elder's calling is unique. First of all, they carry a heavy responsibility. They must have exceptional attitudes 
This is what we're going to look at in terms of the attitudes that God looks for in a spiritual leader. Not because you must serve, but because you're willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. There are about three different things right in this own little verse right there. Not arm twisted to serve. I've been in some churches where I've seen that people had a nominating committee. That's the way we used to do it old school. They would have a nominating committee. Those four or five people would meet. They would have all these little slots to fill. And they would say, who's going to fill this slot? We have to get somebody to fill that slot. And because they had turned the organization into this thing that could not be changed, it had become sacrosanct. They had to fill every slot. And so they would twist people's arms into filling that slot into that role. That person may or may not have really been gifted for that, and they may not have really wanted to serve. And sometimes they try to heap guilt on you. You know, you hear, hear the old, you know, if somebody doesn't teach those little ones, they may not hear the gospel. So we need you on that rotating nursery list right away. You know what that's like. We try desperately not to twist arms into service, especially not in the eldership. That's the wrong way to choose somebody for service. And if somebody feels like you're going to need to nudge them a little bit into that, it shouldn't be. Now, the opposite can be true. We don't want somebody who's so eager, you know, ooh, pick me, pick me, me. I want it, I want it. I want power, I want prestige. I want to be close to the pastor, whatever. No, that's not the right attitude either. But you want to see somebody who's willing to serve and is demonstrating service already so that you can tap them by saying, we see this evident in your life. We want to affirm that. Would you consider doing that? And we do that, and we do it carefully in the body of Christ. Not for personal glory. We had one guy. I try not to use current situations. So it's not because all my illustrations are 25 years old. It's because I just don't want to embarrass anybody. But this happened in a previous church. There was a guy who used to come. Do you remember what they used to have, old-timey things where you have Sunday night services? Remember back in the day? Well, we had Sunday night services, and it would be a, a scaled-down hymn singing time and then usually more of a Bible study rather than a traditional sermon sort of thing. It was tough on pastors because we usually had to have three services to prepare for to teach in every week, plus growth encounter or Sunday school. So that was a lot of study on the part of a, a leader. But there was a guy who used to love to be tapped to preach for a Sunday night service. But he, he, what he really loved was people telling him what a great job he did. He liked having a room full of people to speak to, but he didn't prepare well, quite honestly. He was very disorganized. You kind of get halfway through the, the, the speaking part, and you'd be going, I'm not sure where he's headed with this. And there were a lot of times when you'd walk out and you'd think, well, that was interesting. But he was really doing this more for personal glory than because he was called to do it. And we, as leaders in that church, finally had to recognize that and say, you know, we're going to stop inviting him to do that because this is just not a good fit for this person. We should never seek something just simply because we want the spotlight. We should seek to serve because we're willing to serve because we feel a sense of obligation and duty and responsibility because God's called us to serve. That's the kind of spiritual leadership that God has in his criteria. And then not for dishonest gain. I got really hot under the collar when my grandfather, who helped plant a new church in Sedona, Arizona, talked about a former pastor. That pastor got to know several of the widows in that church, but he didn't get to know them so that he could serve them and to make sure that their needs were cared for. He started putting together a little scheme by which he was going to build some condominiums in Sedona, and he needed investors for his personal pocketbook. 
oh, if I could have had something in my hand, I would have thrown it. When I look at this kind of passage that we're looking at today, I would think that's exactly the kind of thing that we want to avoid at all costs. Another thing that I have caught myself trying to be cautious about, uh, way back in the Amway days, I would have people saying, Pastor, I would like to give you a presentation on Thursday night. And they would tell me how I could bless so many other people through Amway. And I would say, no. And they would say, why not? It would put you in such a great opportunity. And if you made more money, wouldn't it be nice to be able to bless other people because you'd have more money? They used all this stuff. And I would say, but no. Because I don't want somebody thinking that I'm coming to them to shake their hands, to introduce them to the free gospel and reaching for their wallet with the other hand. Not going to happen. I'm not going to be involved in any kind of network marketing while I'm a full-time pastor. These people are trusting me to share the gospel, and it should not be for dishonest gain, period. Now, there are many ways that our elders sacrifice for the sake of others, and I was also praying about whether to share something, and I, I got the green light because of several other leaders, not only that I've read, but who have spoken into my life as well, and I think that it's okay, especially when King David was given in the Old Testament opportunity to give toward the building of the new temple, and it told exactly what he gave out of his own personal resources. So I'm sharing this not to boast, not to brag, not to set any kind of an example, but to say our elders sacrifice for the good of the body. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more enthusiasm ramping up around our building program, and I'm excited by that. But it means that we're going to have to continue to really give toward that, that goal. Joy and I felt very strongly impressed when we were challenged by other leaders when we first started the building program, the very first time that we put the word out and said, we're going to do a three-year program of giving. And uh, we knew we had to do something sacrificial. So we sold our beloved motorcycle. And that was precious to me because that represented freedom. It was our two-hour time away on a day off when we could ride out and find a cup of coffee somewhere in some other nearby town. And I sold that. And you know what? I've never really regretted it. There's been a twinge or two when we'd go on the highway and it's a 65-degree day and somebody's out riding by, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, that looks pretty good. But we also know that we're laying up our treasures in heaven for things that are going to last, and it's, it's important. We want to give where we think the ministry is important, and we want to support what all of you are being asked to support. Plus, we decided we were going to give a percentage, and the percentage we could afford was 4.5% above our tithe toward the building program, which we have maintained ever since we started. So when I started looking back over the last several years since we first started doing that, I'm not going to give you a specific number, but Joy and I believe so much in this vision for what God has done for us that it represents the total amount that would be a pretty nice new car. And I say that not to boast, but to say God gets the glory because I know that people are going to get saved and discipled on the property when there's a building there, and it's going to be worth every penny of that. Uh, we had a chance to give a car to one of our kids because their car died, and Joy and I decided we're not going to replace that because we want to keep giving to the building fund. And we recognize that we can make our schedules work so that when Joy works, I'm at home, I'm getting a lot of study done. Sometimes I'll have people come to the house for meetings. Sometimes I'll walk over to a nearby coffee shop. So we're still getting everything done, but with one vehicle instead of two. And it has allowed us to continue to do what God has called us to do. And it feels good. It just feels great to be able to support what we really believe in. Because we believe in this stuff, folks. We're invested. Now, I know for a fact that there are probably elders who are giving a lot more than we are. 
I don't know how much, though, because I don't have access to those, and I don't want to have access to it. I think that's between people and the Lord. Uh, just so you'll know, I don't ever look at who's giving what. But I just want you to know that elders, all five of us, believe that we need to lead by example, and we want to sacrifice for the good of the kingdom, and that we don't expect anybody to do anything that we're not already doing ourselves. And then, three ways that the elder's calling is unique. We carry a heavy responsibility, we must have exceptional attitudes, and we have to lead by example. I know some of you have probably worked for some bosses that had a rather lording over kind of mentality. Theirs is the my way or the highway leadership style. It's tough, isn't it? That's not usually very effective. And to use guilt as a motivator may work for a short time. It's never a good long-term strategy. It's never a good way to motivate people. We should not lord over those that have been entrusted into our care, but we should be examples to the flock. And I'm here to tell you that every one of the elders here leads by example. I wish you could have been with us in Haiti the first time we went down there because I watched all five of these guys giving sacrificially every day because their hearts were so in what they were doing. And they just gave and gave and gave. And a lot of them, well, in every one of our cases, the church has supplemented helping the pastors with their food, but all the elders have paid for their own plane tickets. We paid for our own motel costs while we're down there, our own food and travel expenses, so that it's not a small deal for them to be able to invest in that. They're not asking for a free ride from anybody because they want to lead by example, and they're entrusted to lead by example, and they're doing so. I watched a baggage handler on one of our flights, and it cracked me up because he'd been given a little responsibility. He must have just been promoted. And he was barking orders to people, including customers, paying customers. Hey, you, come over here. Put that over here. No, turn it the other way. With the label up. And I thought, wow, he needs to read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Because <laughs> he's not doing a great job of that right now. And I thought, somebody's going to notice that. And I doubt that he's going to be in this position of leadership for very long. Because I bet one day on the job, he's going to get, his supervisor is going to get flooded with people saying, what is going on? We're not supposed to be that way. The Apostle Paul said it this way, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Tough to do, but that's what's expected of a godly leader. And that's what the elders take seriously as they seek to follow Jesus' example. And we get it wrong sometimes. I know that comes as a shock. But we get it wrong. And when we do, I want all of us to be humble enough to be able to say, oh, I blew it. I told this person this one thing, and it was wrong, and I need to go and correct that. Or if we have an attitude adjustment that's necessary because our anger gets the best of us and we say something that's hurtful, I want us to be quickly correctable by the Holy Spirit because we don't want to start creating little monsters by saying, oh, we can't talk to them about that. Any elder has my permission for anybody to say, can I talk with you? I want to make sure that our relationship is intact. That's important. And then serve for what? Why would you do all this? You look at this kind of job description, you think, who would want to sign up for that kind of job? Well, the benefits are outstanding. The rewards are fantastic. Look at this in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. He's talking about that same kind of crown, probably thinking about the same kind of Olympics that they used to have back in Greece where they get the olive wreath. That's going to fade. It's going to turn brown, look like your Christmas tree in February. All these things are going to happen, but 
when we get to heaven, that's the crown that will never fade. There are five types of crowns promised to us in the New Testament. Look at what happens to these. There's the imperishable crown, which we saw earlier in 1 Peter. And then there's the crown of rejoicing that we see in Revelation. He gives us reason to rejoice, not only even in our struggles here on earth, but finally we'll really rejoice for all the right reasons when we're in glory and we're in his presence. There's the crown of righteousness. We've talked about that, where we have all of our unrighteousness, and he takes off that robe of unrighteousness, and Christ takes off his own and puts it on top of us, and he covers us with his righteousness. And we have a crown to go with it. And then that crown of life, this is also called the crown of martyrs at times, because it means there are those people who have endured great trials, and many of them have even given their lives for the cause of Christ. We'll have the crown of life, and then the crown of glory that we just read about. All those are great reasons to serve because these are great benefits and they last forever. Let me wrap up with this true story because it, it puts me in mind of the feeling that I start to get when I understand not only how God might feel, but how all of us are going to share in things that we never even knew happened. Reminds me of what Jesus said when somebody would say, but when did I do that to you, Lord? He said, well, when you fed the hungry and you clothed those that didn't have any clothing and when you visited that person in prison, you did that unto me. And I, didn't, I wasn't even aware I did that. That's going to be the wonderful rewards. And when we get to heaven, we're going to have rewards like the one I saw back in Adrian when I was at a large store and a person came up to Joy. And Joy works in a homeless prevention agency part-time in Adrian. She's worked there for years. And a lady said, oh, do you remember me? And Joy said, I do. And she said, uh, this is my husband. She's hi, good to meet you. She said, is it okay for me to talk in front of your husband? And Joy said, sure, that's fine, because she was done with her case, and so she could disclose some information. And she started sharing her success story. She said, when you found the housing, temporary housing for me and my kids, we were desperate. And your agency helped us take that step forward. She said, I went back to school. I finished my nursing degree. I have a job. I'm working full time. She said, we're not afraid anymore. My ex moved out of state. We don't have to worry about the threats that we lived under for so long. She said, our life is so much better now. We found a good church. I'm going to that church that you recommended. She said, it would not have been possible if you had not done what you do. And I just wanted to thank you. And she just gave her this huge, deep hug. And I got to see that. I was peeking over Joy's shoulder, and I got to see her receiving some of the fruit of her labor. We don't often see that, especially people in that position. They very often don't hear from people on the other side of their problem. And she got to feel that. Can you imagine what God would feel like when so many people are rushing up to Jesus and saying, I'm here because you sacrificed for me. Thanks for that. And then what's going to happen when a dozen other people come up and they say, I'm here because you ministered to that person who led that person to the Lord, and they led that person to the Lord, and now I'm here. We'll never know. And it's going to happen. And it's going to be so wonderful because that's the crown of glory that will never fade. That's a good reason to serve. And I got to tell you, I love our elders. Every one of them, like brothers, we've been through a lot together. And I'm so grateful for them, and I hope you are. And I hope you'll support them in prayer. And I hope that we will all together seek to be the kind of Christian examples that God would be so proud of, so that when we do see that hope of glory, he'll look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, your word is so practical. 
And I thank you for Simon Peter and the fact that he had such a huge transformation in his own life and that he's passed along these things to us. And I thank you for people who are trying to take your word seriously as leaders do here at Living Water. And I pray that you will continue to just motivate us through your spirit to catch your vision, not based on the world's standards, but based on your calling for us to be a beacon in a dark world. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.